Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic cosplay to Schitt's Creek to Supernatural and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. I'm very excited to have our guest on. I've mentioned his wonderful film that he wrote, directed, and starred in, Scare Me, which I mentioned also on My Favorite Things of 2020. It was on that list. So I'm very excited to be talking to Josh Rubin today. He's a very talented actor, an amazing writer. I just finished reading your script and it's so well written. So I'm just so honored to have you on here, Josh. So if you just want to introduce yourself and just tell me where you came up with the idea for Scare Me and how that germinated there. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's a pleasure. Um, I wrote Scare Me uh, when I was sort of at the end of my rope um, with just some career stuff, directing a lot of commercials and being sort of frustrated with, you know, directing a lot of commercials about uh, toilet paper and crafting um, and wanting to make movies about things that I cared about. And sort of at the same time, there was the, you know, the confluence of um, events surrounding Me Too. It was the, um, I wouldn't say the beginning of the Me Too movement, but this was uh, late winter, early spring 2018. So Aziz Ansari was in the news and obviously Weinstein and Dustin Hoffman and Louis C.K. and the like. And there were all these sort of industry heroes that were, you know, dropping like flies. And um, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to not only make my own thing because I'm just dying to make my own thing and, you know, put my foot down to, um, you know, take a step in the direction of making myself a filmmaker and because no one's going to spoon feed me the opportunity. Um, I'd love to explore gender dynamics and um, the, um, the toxic white male syndrome, their kind of emasculation in the face of a woman's greatness. And um, it's a wonderfully icky, specific, um, and unfortunately prevalent issue uh, that uh, is responsible, I think, in part for how the movie got made so quickly, you know, because it was, um, you know, very specific and had, there's an urgency to it. And, you know, found people who are willing to help fund <laughs> it and get it off the ground. Here we are. I'm going to skip ahead then since you brought up the fragility of the white male ego, um, and especially the white straight male ego. Um, so you sort of talked a little bit what inspired you to do that, but I want to know, and I'm not at all saying that you, you know, not, not an attack at all on you as a white man, but was there any part of yourself that you were exploring with writing that? Like, was there any part of yourself that you were confronting or anything like that? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's always that, um, 
you're always going to get judge voice and, you know, devil voice that says, um, uh, why does he, why does she, or why do they belong there when I've done X, Y, and Z, when my mom and my dad told me that I would be the best and that mm-hmm. I deserved the world, and that, you know, well, I've had it easy this far. How come I can't have X, Y, and Z? And let's, you know, be honest, I, I have busted ass um, to get to where I am, but I've definitely listened to the devil voice in me um, when it comes to envy and competition. And, and it's been extra interesting and icky and specific when it's been on occasion um, for the great women in my life and in my circle. In my personal case, it's been very rare. I have a lot more with guys, especially men. You know, I get along sort of, you know, I've had more women friends in my life than male friends, let's say. And I've, I've definitely noticed a lot more aggressive competitive habits in men and certainly white straight males um, in entertainment. Um, and I've worked with a lot of them and come up with a lot of them. And, um, so in essence, I'm kind of in Fred playing a confluence of the men that I've met along the way, especially ones that I've had very, who have, you know, confided in me very candidly. They're sort of, um, let's say, uh, uncouth, uh, uh, phrasing towards women that have advanced ahead of them in a way that I, I just was not brought up to talk or think that way. Mm-hmm. I have a little more insulation in them. So you're not attacking at all. It's a very real thing. I was excited to go after and play what I've noticed in those men. Um, but, uh, you know, but also, I don't know, also explain what this project was about to men and especially to men who are kind of alpha, just to see their mm-hmm. reaction. Um, and I like to kind of dig when describing what I'm playing. You know, men are pretty shitty, right? Because we're entitled. And, you know, and like making eye contact with these dudes who, you know, are all taller than me and like making dick jokes. So anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, this fun, um, cathartic revenge to a degree for the bullies, the, you know, the folks in the entertainment industry I've met who I'm kind of, you know, poking, poking my finger at, but also, you know, all the while not necessarily making a quote unquote me too movie. That's, that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily something I set out to do. So yes, in in everything you have to write vulnerably and, and um, I was excited to do it. Yeah. And it's, and it's great. It's really, it's written so well. And as someone who has had her own personal experience on a movie set mm. of having something happen to her, um, it's really interesting to watch something that's written by a man that is so accurate and really, really plays into that ego. And even just dealing with that ego in film and in art, um, it's really, really prevalent especially if you're starting, if you're trying to be in a leadership role and then you have men that are quote unquote below you and they Mm -hmm. don't always like that. So it's a very, 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 very interesting to see it written from a male perspective. And yet you also have a very, very strong female character in Fanny, of course, before we get into Fanny, actually, is I know that you said you were directing a lot of commercials and I know you tweeted recently that you were sick of um, directing commercials about cat litter, wasn't it? Like cat litter, that's what you said. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the truth is, I, I directed one uh, uh, <clears throat> litter genie commercial about you know six years ago, and I, of course, I hated every second of it. The poor kitty. Oh, that was cute to work with the kitty. Uh, but. <laughs> but yeah, so it was 
so was that in this character then, of course, because Fred says that he's in advertising and he wants to kill himself. Of course, he says that offhandedly. But what I loved, though, also is that you watch Fred like when you first see him in the car and he's like, yeah, I'm also an actor and I'm a writer and I this, this, this. And he's hyping himself up. And then slowly as the film goes on, it's like you're saying, I'm not really an actor. I'm not really a writer. I'm not really this. I'm not really that. So it's almost like your ego is being chipped away and you're slowly just saying, yeah, I'm really mm-hmm. just this advertiser and I hate it and I want to kill myself. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a push and pull. I like I like their being or providing you have to kind of have an empathy, you know, for your characters. And I did I, f- I found it interesting to lean into the kind of sad sack side of it and to work towards, you know, what's going on in the crevice of the fracture or with the, the fracturing of this this um this person. He's leaning into it, especially in the face of someone who's cutting him down and basically calling him out at every level until he's sort of, you know, beaten to a nerve. And so that's why, you know, without whatever giving giving anything away although by this point i assume if they're listening to this maybe they've seen the, the movie but you know it's a, <clears throat> it's why by the end he he catapults to the reverse position he, he beats his chest because he has one little and inno- frankly innocuous thing to latch onto, and you have alcohol in the mix which is the position that a lot of you know women find themselves in unfortunately um, uh, or, you know, B-status folks in the face of these sort of fractured characters. At the end of the night, they don't quite know if they're going to roughhouse or make a move or do something worse um, when you bring alcohol into the mix of the emasculated, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, cold male, um, uh, then, you know, all hell could break loose. Mm-hmm. And cocaine, too. That's right. <laughs> So you've got that mix just makes it even worse there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and of course, this is a horror comedy. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, You have history. You were a founding producer of Woodstock Comedy Festival. You also Mm -hmm. did College Humor. You also have a great video that everybody should go watch because you do a lot of great characters and impersonations and stuff. Uh I mean, really, really amazing. And you've got that one that's like 12 characters under 12 minutes. Isn't that a YouTube video? Yeah, that's really, really good. So how did that background help you when it came to writing horror and comedy? I think um, probably most helpful. And, you know, from the beginning, I was a mimic and a sponge, a shy kid who was always a people watcher. And so you pick up on those things, those those innocuous or rather, rather idiosyncratic personality traits of being a, a people person, people person, people watcher um, and an absorber and a mimic and um, uh, an observer was always super helpful. That's, that's you know, what, what every at least, you know, great actor, many great actors a lot of greater actors than me, but that's what the, seems to be the through line, I think, in, you know, the greatest is that they can observe those very specific characteristics, make characters, you know, make you empathize with them regardless of how sort of um, broken they are. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's also, it's in my bones, you know, it's um, the inherent uh, uh, comedic timing and, um <clears throat> a want or an anxiousness or almost like a, like a, like a, like a need to absorb and sponge and copy and mimic. Um, I loved Robin Williams and John Leguizamo so much. And, and really, I think especially loved their 
empathy and character, but also their wildness. They could, Whoopi Goldberg would do the same thing. I mean, you know, they play these incredible characters, but play heart, but, you know, take it, walk it right up to the line of sometimes being offensive or heartfelt or anything else or all things in between. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, it, it ultimately arrived to my, my making this film to showcase all of the above because no one's really going to go out of their way to give an unknown like me for all intents and purposes i am the opportunity to make something like this and so again you needed you know the urgency of the the cultural moment to you know make it all possible Mm -hmm. yeah and i think um i've described horror before on this podcast as the punk rock genre um among all the genres Mm -hmm. And but you also find comedy intermixed with horror a lot. Why do you think that is? Why why do you think they go together so well? I guess it's a, a pressure buildup and release thing. Um, I I I don't know. I mean, I feel like this this question's been been asked of way wiser, more observant filmmakers and historians in and of the genre and film itself. But you know, for me, it was always. I just kind of keep going back to, you know, if you're around a campfire, it's tell me a scary story or tell me a joke. And so it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. no money fun. Um, You can you can uh, make something funny or make something um, horrific and very low quality. And it still gets you still get that kind of endorphin buzz out of it. And so if you can combine both then it's like the best roller coaster of all. But comedy, I think, lends itself great greatly to the genre because again it's like when you let your guard down and you have that pressure relief or release if you can also make someone laugh in that mm-hmm. release then it further disarms you before the you know the um the the, the next jump scare call it so Wes craven was so great at it with you know the scream franchise alone and imbuing you know freddy krueger with with a comedic sensibility and the like it's you can disarm with the comedic mm-hmm. and then suddenly you know some terrifying imagery yeah yeah very good and then of course sound is also very important and sound is mm. extremely important in your movie because there's a lot of stuff you don't see and a lot of it is just the sounds that you're making and fanny's making um, and so what inspired you to write the film where it was so much of the imagination and so much of using, um, your body and your tools as an actor, um, to make the scene, to kind of paint the picture for the viewer. A lot of it was writing very specifically to my, uh, I don't know, quirky psyche imagination background and spolen games and, you know, uh, creating s- stuff, objects, people, things, places out of nothing. So coming from that school of acting with Paul Sills, whose mother was Viola Spolin, who invented Spolin games, you know, um, to kind of academically play in that world. But then also that being the world that I played in as a kid playing in the attic. Um, it's how I talk to myself, how I, um, you know, am the comedian that I am. It's part of my brand, call it for lack of a barfier word, creating something from nothing. Um, it's also a, you know, a wonderfully kind of, um, popular punchy improvisation, um, uh, category 
you know, a two person or even one person improv or group improv, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, there was, there's that sort of piece of it. There's also the piece of it. That's like, we can't afford to leave the campfire in this campfire film. We can't afford the vignettes, but also, Hey, here's the angle. This is going to be a sound designer's movie, a composer's movie. Um, Let's um, be the anthology film that, you know, never breaks to see the anthology that quite literally acts it out. And so, that became kind of part of the fun angle is, Hey, it's low budget. You know, it's not a big financial risk to you investors. Mm-hmm. Um, let's uh, create something from nothing. And, you know, we certainly got the composers and the sound designers excited about it and they did great. Yeah. The sound is so, so good because there's so much that you're kind of just, it, it's, it's pretty amazing because it puts you right there and puts you into the stories. Um, and you don't have to have everything spoon fed to you. Mm. And it's also doesn't rely so much on gore or anything like that. I mean, I like a good slasher, but it's nice to have something that's not relying on that necessarily. And mm. where you are um, relying on the viewer to be intelligent enough to be able to pick up on cues and to be able to use their imagination. And your imagination is always scarier than anything you're going to see on screen anyway, I think. Yeah. So I think that that really, really made it even better. It's even better when you watch watch it more than once and you watch it again, you pick up different things and different sounds and different little movements. So yeah. So Mm -hmm. great, great job there. I think that's a great decision. So yeah. And I know a lot of it was money wise too, but still it's a, it was a great, great decision to do that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I also love the original song, which you can now get on iTunes and Spotify. You can listen to it, the feel the music, feel the light, get ready for some serious evil. And I have to say, since it's been released, I've had that song. And then this is an interesting combo. And then Lisa Loeb's Stay stuck in my head. And I've had the Lisa Loeb song in my head because um, have you watched uh, that movie After Midnight on Shudder? Oh, no, I'm dying to. Henry Zabrowski's in it. My good buddy. I can't wait. It's really good. And so I won't say why I have it stuck in my head then because I don't want to. But it has one of the best jump scares ever. I will say that, though. One of the best ones. So, but yeah, yeah. So that's why I have both of those songs stuck in my head. Oh, that's a great combo. Yeah, yeah. So you have to watch that movie. Anyway, um, and that one's also on Shudder, everybody, because as our listeners know, I mention Shudder constantly. Um, (laughs) They're the best. They are. They're so they're so great. And they have so much more diversity than a lot of other streaming services do, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So but what was it like writing that song? I know you didn't. I mean, I know. Aya Cash didn't sing it and everything, but what was it like writing the lyrics for that and what sort of inspired it? Was there any pop song that inspired that? Uh, not a pop song in particular. I, I always, I've always loved God for being a straight white male. Um, I guess because my mom w- w- uh, blasted uh, uh, the Bodyguard soundtrack and then later I fell in love. Oh, and then the, the Mirror Has Two Faces soundtrack. You got that Brian Adams, Barbara Streisand duet that I just, I just love to sing karaoke and just surprise people, sometimes both parts. Um, uh, but also the South Park movie was such a big influence on me. When it came out, I probably listened to that album again and again and again because I was a, you know, a giggly, I don't know, 13-year-old boy. But I did want to make a um, set out to make a very kind of um, you know, self-serious American Idol-esque ballad on par with something Parker and Stone would, would compose. So Chris Maxwell and 
Phil Hernandez absolutely knocked out of the park. And my friend, Annie Kruger, um, who's, who's from Woodstock, New York, that whole crew is, um, did the vocals and just, just absolutely killed it. Um, and the lyrics, I mean, I just basically kind of, you know, just wrote as ridiculously as I could. And then <laughs> it, it was up to Chris and Phil and Annie to just like mm-hmm. make it what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's something, you know, well, we're in a pandemic, so you're not going to be around a lot of people, hopefully everybody. Um, but it is one that you don't want to necessarily get stuck singing some of the lyrics out loud. <laughs> yeah, right. I was so I was a little nervous about posting the preview. It was like killing your your family members and then killing yourselves. And I was like, well, you know, whatever. Hey, maybe it'll make people click. It's clickbait. Yeah, and killing babies. I mean. Yeah, right. There you go. Can't go wrong. Now that's clickable. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, I want to talk about the cast because you've got a great cast here. And I want to talk about Aya Cash, who we've talked about before when we covered the boys on here. Um, but she is she is so good in this movie. Um, and she toes that line between comedy and drama so deftly, especially in the last scenes where you've got that buildup between Fred and Fanny and where he's found her notebook and read her notebook um, and what was it like working with her and how did she come aboard the project and everything? Uh, I mean, Aya Cash is, is the best. Um, working with her was wonderful. She was just so easy and so, uh, so lacking of ego, such a team player, so down for whatever. Um, I've known her for many years. I met her through her husband, who's a documentarian, whose name is also Josh. And we used to do voiceovers together. And so I'd kind of, I'd run into Aya once, you know, once a year or something mm-hmm. over the last decade. And um, and then when the opportunity came um, to create, um, you know, to do this film, I was my first ask because not only was she the most talented actor in my circle, but she was the most accessible, you know, she um, was, uh, she's a native to the Hudson Valley area, um, near to where we shot. And so I thought, Hey, you just finished this show. Do you want to come, you know, play, you have a background doing, you know, live performance. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to give this a go? It's not a sexualized relationship, um, between these two characters. It's an opportunity for you to do voices and play ugly and play big and cute and small and, um, crazy and all, all the things. And she was, she was super down. We had her for nine days of a 14-day <clears throat> schedule, and Chris read for about, you know, 42 hours, and they, you know, they, they just killed. Yeah, yeah, they did, they did. And I want to just say really quickly, since you brought that up, I really appreciate that there was no sexual relationship between these two characters, um, because I think it would have been easy, really easy to do that, and so I just really applaud you for not doing that so thank you yeah it was there. it was important to me for sure and that was it was also i as um it was i's first question she's like i'll do whatever you know so long as there's no gratuitous sex and it should come off this you know sexy show and mm-hmm. and um it's not it's not in any way about that even though there's like a you know moment i wouldn't even call a moment it's it's about power and and dynamics and um and there's you know it's not worth clouding it making about anything else yeah um and uh, yeah, I'm glad we went okay. that way. Yeah, me too. Okay, and then Chris Red, who plays Carlo, the pizza delivery guy, who I have to say, I lived in, I lived in the mountains for a while, and I was like, we never could order pizza and get pizza <laughs> delivered. That would have been so awesome to be able to do that. But anyway, he is a great addition, especially because he adds the tension, and he's just so funny. 
And um, even though I read read the script, was there any improvisation that he added in or anything that he added to the character that wasn't already there? Oh, yeah. I had him the first his first scene, I think, was, you know, um, the first scene we shot with him was him sneaking in. Uh, and um, I had him just do God probably to the uh, to the, you know, the dismell of my DP. Um a 10 minute take of just kind of going off improvising all the various murders um, that uh, that could occur that night, you know, during the snowstorm. Um, you can actually see now on DVD and Blu-ray, now that Scare Me is out, you can check out the extras um, where uh, you just get a sense of what I had Chris do and just, you know, what Chris did just sort of going off, you know, acting out whatever the zodiac and killing a cop who pulled him over and rolling a car into a river and uh, <laughs> chopping people up with chainsaws it was just it was awesome there while there was you know there was certainly a looseness and we did improvise a little bit we actually as much as we've been you know kind of been applauded for being a quote-unquote improv movie and also torn apart for being a quote-unquote improv movie there's barely any improv um aya probably had the most sort of um improvised lines just tossed out that we loved um you know about zumba and uh you know um incels and um and we just thought they were they were brilliant but we really didn't have time to improv a mm -hmm. bit you know we often would just kind of get you know within the first two takes or something whatever they had to offer yeah that that makes sense yeah that zumba line that zumba line is so so good as someone who's done zumba too it was like oh yeah i i know exactly what she's talking about that was a great line there um and for me my favorite story is probably the troll story um and it became my favorite over time my favorite was the big talent show live and i would say about like the second or third viewing it became the troll story especially with adding in that you're at the edit that it's in an edible arrangements office. I mean, that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. So I want to know what your favorite story is out of those. I, yeah, I think I agree. I think troll, you know, troll was like the epitome of why I made this movie as a bit of an actor's showcase. And that was the one where, you know, I, I wrote to kind of shine myself to do this silly walk and silly voice. And I love the pacing of it. It comes at a nice time right before mm -hmm. Carlo gets there. It's nice and quick. Um, but I also have a fond, um, memory of venus just sit because from a directorial standpoint even though it was a really tough one to do sitting there i got to sit there and basically watch chris and aya act out what was originally as you can tell by the script like 10 or 12 pages mm -hmm. and we had to edit it down to a <laughs> we had to edit it down to like a minute and a half if that yeah but um yeah Dev, um uh, troll was so fun to just kind of pace out you know yeah. And I don't know if you have any siblings, but did you do that for, do you have any siblings and did you? I have older troll? siblings. I am, and I would, I would, I didn't, I don't think I did my troll character for them, but I definitely like, I, I had a thing for a long time in my twenties where I would, you know, it was like my party trick. I'd get down, you know, squat down low and do, you know, mm -hmm. schmeagle. <laughs> and uh, speaking of Venus, and it is cut down, of course, from the script. So you never tell the whole story of Venus. And even in the script, it's like still kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. Was there a reason you did that? Was it because of Fred's growing jealousy of Fanny's success, especially because Carlo is there fawning all over her? And, you know, was was that part of the reason why you never really saw the full story of Venus? Yeah, we, we uh, in, in, 
first of all, in, in looking at the full, you know, whatever it ended up being six minute scene or eight minute scene, it just was too long. And in, in test audiences, you know, just show, showing it to buddies, it was always the scene where people kind of squirmed in their chair and were sort of, you know, um, uh, checking out a bit. And um, we had a great suggestion where someone was essentially like, hey, you know, they've done these drugs. Why not sort of, you know, um, take the the detail out of this, you know, kick-ass, career-changing, sensational novel and make it, you know, just this kind of mystery in its uh, – in its synapse firing to Fred. And I think it, it ends up being, you know, way more effective than showing you granularly, you know, um, every sort of step of, of the, of the story. And I'm, I'm so glad that we cut that down. It was, it was the keystone problematic, you know, um, uh, I wouldn't say headbutting, but definitely, mm-hmm. you know, heated edit, you know, with for Patrick and I, because we were constantly toying with how much we could, you know, how much we could trim down without, you know, this domino effect to, you know, harm the rest of the film or um, uh, details given or taken away and everything else. So um, uh, thank God we, we got that feedback because it's, it, it, it's, it's way tighter than it was. The first cut of the movie was got like two hours and 10 minutes or something. And as my, as a first time filmmaker, I was like, Oh, every second of this is great. Oh, this is, and, and our editor was like, you know, Patrick's like, no, you're going to, you're going to cut at least 30 minutes out of this. It's a big lesson. I was like, Oh yeah. And even now looking back, especially after my next feature and the zippy editing of werewolves within, you know, the, the you, there's now I'll go back and look at scare me. I'm like, Oh my God, there's at least eight minutes of timing and fat you can suck out. Um, so, so, uh, you know, you're always writing, always writing and rewriting with every every art. Mm-hmm. It's very much that kill your babies. Kill oh, your yeah. Baby. yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, there you go with this, the, the song. <laughs> that again. <laughs> um, and I guess this is kind of spoilery. So if you haven't watched the movie, but I mean, I would assume, like you said, you have if you're listening to this. Um, but do you think in the end, Fred really did want to hurt Fanny or was it more just his ego was so bruised that he was just playing that up? I think the um, confluence of bruised ego uh, of um, uh, embellishing in his anger the way that children do and they fall down and they know that if they cry harder they can make more of a scene it's almost just more of a, of a selfish act even though they're not really hurt I think he, I don't think he meant to hurt her I think it, it, it was one of those things when you take you roughhouse I think he was mm-hmm. roughhousing and alcohol is involved drugs are involved you know egos are hurt it's late and and um that muddying of the line, I think, is what makes it really scary, and also be, in in its in its realistic, you know, in its realistic nature. It reminds me of something Mike Nichols uh, said. Um, he was one of my instructors from years ago at an acting school that no longer exists, the New Actors Workshop, and he would talk about acting with doing these improv shows with Elaine May. And there was one scene that they did where they got into, you know, a fight as a couple and started out with a sort of playful shoving. And they brought a little bit of real life, whatever was going on in their real lives, whatever contention that was happening in their real lives, into their scene work on stage. And they ended up, you know, sort of accidentally and yet leaning into the hysteria 
of the emotions that they were playing and they ended up scratching each other, um, uh, you know, scratching each other's faces. And then when the curtain dropped, they kind of collapsed into each other's arms. And we've all had those moments where we know we can step outside of ourselves, astral project and sort of go, I'm going too far. I'm taking it too far. I'm taking mm-hmm. it too far. And by the end of this night, you know, it's quote unquote justified, even though it's wrong. And um, yeah, that's what it was. Originally, in the original, original script, he was a light switch psycho. And in this version, it was, mm. um, it was, it was a good note I got from a producer we didn't end up working with, which is an investor, Ray Mansfield, um, who said, you should muddy the line a bit. It's, it's more effective. And he was totally right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that would have been a little bit off, a little bit off-putting. It wouldn't have fit really well if he would have all of a sudden mm-hmm. been that light switch. Yeah, yeah. So very, very good decision there. Um, and I'm just curious, where do you think Fanny ended up? Where do you think she is now? I think Fanny is probably in development hell on some bastardized version of a book of short stories that she wrote or development hell on Venus. I think she took it right up to the line of getting it shot, of having a director Mm -hmm. come aboard and there being some disagreement or her, you know, realizing the director's a handsy misogynist piece of shit and causing a fuss and um, her gender kind of getting caught up in the Hollywood of it all and her being Mm -hmm. punished you know, maybe Ray Fisher style Um, uh, and um, things getting stalled. I wouldn't be surprised, but I think she's in the Hollywood grinder. Yeah. That's what I picture. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, And in the end you have Bettina who was the driver who I also want to just quickly point out. I forgot to point it out before. I thought it was really funny that your character, Fred, he says he doesn't have any money to tip her. And then later he gives a big tip to Carlo. I don't know if that was intentional or not. Wow. You just called that out. I totally didn't realize. (laughs) It was just so funny because it's, I'm like, oh, he must've done that because she, she kind of, I don't know she made him feel annoyed or she was just annoying him. And maybe it was that female male dynamic, but. Yeah, and I just Happy thought it was mistake. so funny. Yeah, oh, okay. I th- okay. that thing that's a, that was a real cab drive. I went. I mean, I wasn't that. Um, I, I wasn't that uh, terse with the driver, but the driver who is hard pitching me this James Cameron, you know, biblical epic. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, art imitates life, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. But why did you decide um, to have Bettina get the notebook in the end, and then, of course, become a successful writer with all these stories? It it was actually a surprise that came out kind of in the writing. Um, uh, When she came to pick him up, uh, I didn't quite, I didn't quite know how it was going to end short of, you know, um, a a wide shot of the house um, with Bettina, you know, rolling up and then just kind of cutting the black. And um, I don't know, it just, it, it felt like a perfect full circle given that, you know, here's someone who theoretically would never have the opportunity. Both of these people have been just dying and, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, killing themselves uh, to get any kind of modicum of opportunity. Even Fred, even Fred, who's, you know, wanted it and in that wanting it being kind of difficult, but Fanny has worked her whole life. And then here you go, you got this cab driver from the Catskills coming in with all of her big ideas and finding this, you know, theoretical gold mine. Um, so it just felt, uh, I don't know. It felt, it feels like in a loose way, kind of commentary on this industry, you know, it's like things mm-hmm. can happen that kind of arbitrarily and painfully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you directed yourself in this. Are there any challenges that that presents? <laughs> 
Uh, you know, yes and no. Um, my cinematographer and I had a wonderful kind of pact. Um, Brendan Banks, you know, we, we'd worked on a, a ton of stuff together. He and I go way, way back. He was my intern in the college humor days, dating way back to, you know, 08. And um, our prerogative was um, to be as buttoned up as possible, but also to um, uh, to to never look at playback if we didn't have to, um, especially, um, you know, because if there were, you know, you split Fred into two or if there was a Fred, an actor Fred and a, and a director Josh, um, uh, we would have to, you know, we wouldn't have to double the time if actor Josh had to also run behind screen and look through footage every take. So Brendan would um, sort of, we had a code word for when takes would be bad. He'd say, you know, or a code phrase, say, you sure you don't want another one? And, um, uh, and he would, he would take screenshots of the viewfinder and show me, you know, on his phone. And so I just kind of, I think the biggest challenge was that I was, I was more reluctant to, or I was quick to not give myself a second or third take. I was very selfless, I think, to almost in some cases to a fault. In fact, to a fault, unless Brendan had stepped in and he often would step in and go, you should do another one. You know, you mm -hmm. can do it looser. You can slow down is kind of essentially what he was saying. And so um, that was that was about the entire stress of it. We were so buttoned up on this shoot that by the time we were, you know, we were shooting by the time we were on, you know, day one, I would go into the makeup chair after kind of walking the crew through the day. So we're all on the same page and then just kind of be the actor. You know, I could direct the actors within the scene. Um, but uh, we, we set up a really, really well organized, I think, operation, all things considered. And there were a lot of obstacles against us. The weather, we were snowed out twice. You know, there was ice. There was, you know, um, uh, yeah, cars running off the road and all kinds of stuff. So. Um, and do you think being an actor helps you to be a better writer and director? I think so. I think from a writing perspective, perhaps the, um, you know, the amount of scripts you read, you sort of go, that's bullshit. I never want to be a part of it. Um, but uh, I think as an actor, yeah, I, my, my biggest um, impetus for, you know, for directing, I think is um, – my kind of mission statement, I guess. Um, sorry about the helicopter. Welcome to California. Okay. Um, you know, is I I I'd spent so much time as a, as an on camera talent or as background talent, where I was treated so poorly, and so I'm very cognizant of the actor's psychology, and so I think that's that's what makes me a good a good actor's director. But I'm I'm an exposed nerve. I can shield up. But when an actor tells me or pulls me aside and say, you know, um, when I feel like I've hit the nerve, mm -hmm. where they they um, in so many words tell me that they're not taken care of or don't feel protected or don't feel comfortable enough, I feel just totally shattered. You know, unlike some of the more you know kind of you know uh, rhino rhinoceros skinned um you know alpha directors I'm, I'm extremely sensitive so i think that makes me great at performances and you know shutting the room up and being a, you know a lion for um a protective animal for for my <laughs> troop but um it definitely makes it extra uh emotional for me i think is is the proper word when you know when i when and if i ever let them down which i'm i'm proud to say is rare um, but yeah, I think, I think, um, it's, uh, 
it's immensely helpful, you know, all, all the years seeing what was right and wrong about, you know, both sides and uh, trying to, you know, make it right through my operation. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I know you've spoken a little bit about possibly turning Scare Me into a play. Is there yeah. any movement on that? Because it would be a great play. So it'd be a great play. I've got a lot of stuff on my plate right now. And so I think the, I think the goal would be if I can, um, uh, finish whatever the next job is and so that I can mm -hmm. have that satisfied, tired, um, uh, uh, moment, um, uh, or, or runway to go, okay, now I'm going to do something for myself. I'm going to, you know, take some time, you know, two, three weeks, a month off to, to write the play. But yes, I'm definitely going to write the play. It will someday be on stage. Mark my words. I think it'd be wonderful. Yeah, that would be awesome. And then hopefully we can be in a theater watching a play. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, my God, may <laughs> we please. Very nice. I know. I know. I know I had quite a few theater tickets that I didn't get to do. So uh, yeah, it would be so nice to be back in a theater. Are you um, in the East coast? Are you, are no, you? No, I'm right now I'm in Colorado. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, if you were able to, it, what can you say about uh, werewolves within or is there anything you can talk about that? Yeah. Um, well, I, if I think this should be airing early March, so I think I can say um, uh, uh, the announcement um, that would have happened by now is that Werewolves Within um, is going to be distributed by IFC Films. So the folks behind The Babadook and Relic and um, Boyhood, there's wonderful horror films. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh and yeah, it's it's a uh, it's an ensemble, you know, horror comedy whodunit with Sam Richardson in the lead, and just a fantastic cast. And I'm so so thrilled um, to show it to the world. So um, more announcements to come for sure, but uh, it's all very exciting. And uh, you know, the um, release date can't come soon enough. So there'll there'll be some some more announcements, uh, you know, from this point on. Awesome. Well, congratulations. Seriously. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I'm excited for you to see it. Yeah. And you have a werewolf story in Scare Me as well. So is there something about werewolves that just attracts you? or? I think the werewolf films that I saw in my formative years, Bad Moon, Silver Bullet, um, uh, and I think I think there's something about those two in particular because I I only saw The Howling recently and I maybe never have seen an American Werewolf in London, which is a total crime. Um, <laughs> but there was something about especially about um, Silver Bullet. Oh, and Monster Squad. The that <laughs> confluence of those three films just totally um, terrified me as a kid and. Um, and also, I think riled up my my horror brain. There's just, um, uh, yeah, I think they're the most terrifying uh, of of the movie monsters. The fact that too, you can know this person during the daytime, but that they can turn out to be something so inherently vicious. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, it, it's it's always been in the back of my brain. It's funny because Fred's werewolf story is very loosely based on an idea, a kid who was next to me in English class. I totally fredded this idea from this kid, but it was a kid I'll never forget. I wish I knew his <laughs> name. I'd credit him. 
but he had the, he, we had to write short stories in English class and he wanted to write a short story about a girl whose parents were killed by a werewolf and then she became a bounty hunter mm-hmm. and I thought that was such a cool idea um, and he thought of it ages ago I wish I could get in touch with him and be like we should do it but um, that was uh, it was definitely lifted so I was an elementary school thief I was an elementary school plagiarist <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a natural friend <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I was watching uh, that little thing you did where you were talking about that uh, short horror story you wrote about the shark and oh, the yeah. restaurant. <laughs> and shark I watched that rem- Central Bay, obviously. Yeah, and that reminded <laughs> me of when I was in elementary school, I wrote a story about a couch that ate people and killed people. Whoa. And then, you know, there's a movie out called Killer Couch. <laughs> wow. Oh, I love that. And I'm yeah. like, someone stole that idea from me. So, you know, absolutely was to me. So. <laughs> absolutely. I feel like children to have a child writer's room just for an hour would just be, yeah. you know, just endless gold mine. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be really great. So what is your favorite horror movie? I'm just curious. Oh, gosh, I feel like I've I've answered this with so many different uh, so many different films. I, I mean, the one I immediately go to and I, I you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a horror film, but Jaws was so formative to me. Nightmare on Elm Street, so formative to me as a kid. But the one I keep coming back to um, is um, uh, Cat's Eye, the anthology film, the Stephen King mm-hmm. anthology, I think as, as a kid to watch this to watch these different stories and these different, um, these different circumstances, all these, you know, this rotating cast, but the, the, the anchor in that, the troll story really freaked me out as a kid who I was convinced, you know, with, you know, having a, my pet monster and, um, being obsessed with ghostbusters, I was convinced, you know, there were creatures under my bed pretty much at all times. <laughs> so probably cat's eye. Yeah. That's a weird huh. one. Just because of the nostalgic, yeah. uh, all of it. it's a, it's a terrible movie, but I, I think I know the nostalgia <laughs> of it all reels me in. It keeps coming back to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about that. When you, when you watch horror movies as a kid, it really does give you these weird fears. Like I'm afraid of hammers. I'm afraid of white <laughs> houses that are in the middle of fields and there's nothing around that. Terrifying. Same. My gosh. Yeah. yeah oh, it's, wow. And it's from all of those years of watching horror movies when I was way too young. I mean, my babysitter showed me Poltergeist when I was like five or six years old and Uh, then also showed me The Shining and I didn't even realize it until later. And I was like, oh, that's why I know that blood dripping down from the elevator. Yeah. My babysitter showed that to me. So yeah, it gives you all these weird fears. It's really funny. <laughs> there was some, I'm racking my brain. I haven't done a deep enough dive in it, but there were, I think it was like a local commercial for some, maybe conserving electricity. This is such an obscure thought, but it was, there was something about the boogeyman being in the dark, but also turning the lights out. And I'll never forget. It was like this pitch shift low, like, low boogeyman voice and it was like local television a local like promo um that has stuck with me in like my artisan um lock you know treasure chest uh horror brain for ages and ages and just like what you were saying there's some there are like these imprints that you get from moments Mm -hmm. and i certainly i i certainly have them and and, uh can't forget them there's something to like nightbreed you know clive barker's nightbreed which i should definitely not have seen as a seven-year-old kid (laughs) but i i was convinced there were monsters in the field and then also there was an interesting i mean of course uh, uh 
overwhelming queerness about it. So to mm-hmm. see a movie like that when you're a kid and all the interesting feelings stirring, all these different characters from mm-hmm. different, you know, backgrounds and looks and sizes and shapes and, you know, fanged and beyond um, being like, you know, touchy feely with each other. So that was an interesting one to see as a kid. And then to kind of, you know, I, yeah. I don't know, kind of navigate life, Clive Barker uh, imprinting <laughs> all our children young. <laughs> yeah yeah it's the power of film <laughs> the power indeed of film. Yes, indeed yeah, yeah. yeah it's incredible yeah now another thing you've spoken about is that you really want to see a dark man reboot now this is a big thing <laughs> that's a passion of yours what is it about that story and the character uh i wore the vhs into the ground as a kid so i think as a kid when i first saw it there was something about the color and the pacing i think that might have been it and and the kind of um you know the lizard the lizard brain palette um rate of change from you have you have a little bit of everything you've got um you know uh uh, uh scary makeup uh action sequences uh, colors, Dutch angles, um, breaking bones, uh, horror and machine guns, you know, you've got like all these things. And so for my kind of, you know, genre loving kid brain, it had a bit of everything, but now being an adult and being a writer and understanding what story is and how to write a good story, you know, you look at like how tragic this kind of fan of the opera style character is. He, he, he left, he walked away from his life from the love of his life. You know, Paul Peyton Westlake walked mm-hmm. away from Julie at the end of the movie because he didn't feel like he deserved to have a life um, because of the way that he looked. He's a burn victim who is also kind of, you know, whose mental acuity is waning. And so you have this, um, I don't know, basically like, what Sam Raimi based the character on. It's a, it's a universal movie monster. It's kind of a Frankenstein, you know, type creature who doesn't think it deserves love. And so to have this character that at its heart, his heart doesn't feel he deserves love and connection um, to also fight crime and to be losing himself. So to allow that kind of, you know, dare I say goofy humor mm-hmm. um, it as an adult has something for everyone if you can throw interesting villains in the mix and so i i I, there's not a lot i can say about any movement on professionally on the darkman side but i've (laughs) definitely pursued it and i would be thrilled to take a shot at it well we'll keep fingers crossed for you (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome well thank you so much josh this has been i could talk to you for hours you it's just been talking with you so same thank you if you ever want to questions Thank you very much. Thank you. If you ever want to come on and be on one of our panels, you're more than welcome to be a guest Anytime. on one of our panels. Well, if you want to just tell everybody where they can find you and if you have anything else you want to promote. Uh, just uh, at Josh Rubin on Instagram and Twitter and check out Scare Me on DVD and Blu-ray and VOD wherever you get your movies. Awesome. Thank you. And this is Aaron. You can follow me on Twitter at eAprilBeauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. And if you have any feedback, show notes, anything you want to add, feel free to reach out to us at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And since this episode is dropping on March 5th, our next episode is going to be our 100th episode. 
So we are going to be doing a special giveaway before then and quiz. And you're going to also hear a lot of outtakes with a lot of uh, bloopers from me. So it should be a fun episode. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing and Black Lives Matter. Thank you again for listening to It's a Fandom Thing. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our logo was designed by Brooke Belly with cover art by Carla Timmies. Additional research was done by Megan Archuleta. Our Instagram and Facebook content producer and creator is Erin Amos. And our producer is Lila Tafola. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe. And remember, keep that fandom spirit alive. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.